0: okay um, this session is health for the health for all by the year 2020 which as some of you older folks will recognize refers to the old slogan that disappeared 20 years ago health for all by the year 2000 what's that Yeah, well, oh, stick that in my pocket. Yes. Uh, Let's see. Or on my belt or something. Uh, So let's start off by talking to the one who makes health possible. Father, we're gathered here because there's business to be done, difficult business serious business, and business that affects the lives of four or five billion people, and for whom we are responsible. So I just want to ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit guide us as we talk together, that you put words in our mouths and the thoughts in our hearts that you want us to have, so that we can see how we can carry out the responsibilities you want to give us to bring good news of life and of health to billions of people around the world. So may your presence bless us here and may your spirit fill this room. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, A couple of questions. Uh, How many of you really want to make this world a better place for people to live? Well, that looks like a pretty good representation. How many of you want to make it a world where people are healthier? Okay. Where children and mothers and fathers can have the health care that they need. Okay, uh, Where mothers can deliver their babies safely, is that of interest to you? Uh-huh. Okay, Then you're in the right place. But I really want you to listen carefully to what we're going to be talking about. It's not going to be pleasant. because the reality is, Things are no better today than they were a long time ago. And I'm Dan Fountain. My wife and I went to the Congo in 1961 and into a rural situation, a rural bush hospital, where we were the only health facility for a quarter of a million people who were scattered over a fairly wide area which meant that 95% of those people effectively had no health care. There was no transportation, hardly any roads, and what roads there were had no trucks on them or vehicles. People didn't have any. They walked. And so we had to deal with that dilemma. But we did see God working, and things did develop. In In the 1970s, the World Health Organization had a very gifted director, Dr. Halfden Mahler, who felt who recognized the poor state of health around the world, and that it was absolutely essential that nations in their national health policies focus on primary health care. Now, the term primary health care in that context is different from what it's used here in the United States. Here in the United States, primary health care means family practitioners. But around the rest of the world, primary health care means making available to people the necessary curative care for the common and life-threatening illnesses that occur to them, no matter who provides it. Uh and like I say, in Congo, we realized that 90% of the people for whom I was responsible, because I was the only doctor in that area, they had, no prime, they had nowhere to go when their children began to convulse or to have horrible diarrhea or whatever because they lived too far away. So in 1978, the World Health Organization organized a big conference in the city of Alma-Ata, which is now Almaty, uh, in Russia, uh, calling together the health ministers of all the nations of the world. And there a very strong push was made to extend primary health care services to everybody in every country before major investments were made in secondary and tertiary care. And the World Health Organization said, please get basic health care to all your people before you build big hospitals, uh, tertiary care facilities, uh, and all of that sort of thing. And they came out with the slogan, health care for, well, actually it was health for all by the year 2000. Very optimistic, sounded wonderful. They promoted the training of community health workers at that conference uh, based on the Chinese model of the barefoot doctor as being a major way to make primary health care available to people. But it failed. In fact, by the year 1990, you didn't dare breathe that slogan, Health for All, by the year 2000, because we knew it wasn't going to happen. And when 2000 came around, there was less health care in the world. I mean, health care was available to fewer people in the world than it was in 1978. And so the question we had to face then and it's exactly the same question we face now in two thousand and nine. Why did it fail? And then what do we do about it? And I'm going to focus on two major reasons why the Alma Ata Declaration of Primary Health Care failed in most parts of the world, and then what we can do about it. But let me qualify by saying it did not fail in the communist countries. And we need to think about that with some shame, because when you study the Chinese model, Cuba, Cuba had a marvelous health care system under Castro. North Korea, they had primary health care available in every tiny village or collective farm. But, of course, they did it because it was central policy. They trained many, many, many primary health care doctors and posted them throughout their countries. They did a good job. The only other country that I'm aware of that did actually put into practice the primary health care declaration was the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And it happened there, and it still exists primarily because of Christian missions. We were doing it. We had already been doing it. Many others in the Protestant network were doing it, and it can be done. And by the way, Congo is one of the most disorganized, dysfunctional countries in the world, and the economy is zero, and yet primary health care is still available to over half of the people, and it's because of the church-based networks. Well, why did Alma-Ata fail? First of all, because the concept of decentralization never took root. And what all of the nations of the world outside the communist bloc and the Congo have focused on is institution-based health care. And that, of course, is the U.S. model. We love our hospitals. We love our um, Know, glorious clinics. We love our secondary and tertiary uh, care facilities. Uh, we don't like to what we consider downgrading our standards to make them available to a large number of people. So decentralization has not occurred, and primary health care remains inaccessible geographically to vast numbers of people. They live too far away from the nearest hospital or clinic. It's inaccessible economically. It costs too much. And as we know, health care, even in this country, is only for the rich. And thirdly, culturally, and even in throughout Africa and Latin America, our health care facilities are very, very Uh, culturally specific, and most most people still prefer their traditional models of health care as opposed to our modern facilities. That's the first reason, the failure to decentralize. The second reason is because we have not trained the kind of people that can make primary health care available to people. And we're going to focus on these two things, because these two things need to be done, and they can be done, and I'm going to explain that to you. And when I say the key personnel necessary to make primary health care available to people are nurse practitioners. Now, let me qualify that the terms differ from country to country. In our country, it was basically infirmiers. Uh, That, of course, is a French term. Uh, It's a masculine term, and the nurse practitioners who can make primary health care available in both urban and uh, rural areas are primarily men nurse practitioners. And again, I'll explain why uh, that is so. So we're going to talk, first of all, about the training of paramedical or mid-level health personnel. Most people don't need to see a doctor. If you get sick in Baltimore or in Louisville and you make an appointment, who are you going to see? Who's going to see you? Is the doctor going to see you? Maybe eventually, but it's going to be his nurse practitioner or his physician assistant. Uh, and oftentimes, that would be the only person to see you. It's the only person who needs to see you. A well-trained nurse practitioner or PA in any country of the world can take care of probably 90% of illness episodes that occur in Congo, Our philosophy was that a well-trained nurse practitioner can take care of 100%. Now, they can adequately treat maybe 95%, but they're trained to recognize the other 5% that they can't, and so they refer. But basically, everybody who comes to a well-trained nurse practitioner should receive the care that they need either directly or through a referral system. So we're talking about training mid-level people and that is a diploma level people or even an auxiliary level people. Uh, We began that in 1962 in Congo training auxiliary nurse practitioners which was at least 10, maybe 20 years before the term nurse practitioner was invented in this country. And I can assure you that My wife and I carried a fairly heavy burden of guilt. We were training nurses to do things that a nurse would be put in jail for doing in the United States. Prescribing treatment, giving treatment, doing minor surgery, things like that. And it's been fascinating for us living in Congo to see what's been happening in the United States. And the United States is following the African model, maybe 20 years behind. But it's remarkable to see how rapidly it has developed in this country. Anyway, uh, and this is a marvelous opportunity to make disciples. I mean, here you've got young people, young men, young women, sitting in classrooms, working on wards, sitting in seminars with you for three solid years. And you can show them what it is to serve Jesus. Whether you're in a Christianized country or churchified country, as Dr. Chuck mentioned, or an Islamic country or a Hindu country or a Buddhist country, you're demonstrating to them what it means to live as a a follower of Jesus. And of course, you're multiplying your knowledge and your skills, and this is essential to assure sustainability. Now, still today, the model of medical missions, as it's commonly talked about in this country, is the big mission hospital. That's not sustainable. And many of the well-known mission hospitals that exist today in Africa or Latin America are heavily dependent on American personnel, dollars, and so forth. But this model is not. And I think we need to realize that we doctors will never solve the health problems of people around the world. There are between 3 and 4 billion people around the world who do not have access to quality primary health care. Some have no access to any kind of health care, maybe 2 billion. And maybe another couple of billion, the health care they do have some access to, is not of good quality. But doctors aren't the answer. For the very simple reasons that we doctors, we want to make money. We want a comfortable uh, lifestyle. We want a place where our children can go to school and where we can have, you know, the kind of lifestyle that we're grown up in. We're not going to live out in the bush, nor are we going to live in an urban resource poor environment. And furthermore, we're trained in big institutions. I was trained at Strong Memorial Hospital in Rochester, New York. Very fine institution. And that's where I was trained as a medical uh, student to function. And then I spent a year in Philadelphia General Hospital, a big institution in Philadelphia, and then at the University of Alabama Hospital in Birmingham. Lovely big Then I went to Africa, to the bush. (laughs) So obviously my goal was to take this little mission hospital and make it resemble Strong Memorial or PGH or the UAB. I mean, that's how I'd been programmed. I didn't follow that, but nevertheless that's what most of us do. In Congo now, there may be three to 4,000 Congolese doctors. Which sounds like wonderful progress. And the Congo is indeed making progress in getting uh, doctor coverage to its people. 90% of those doctors serve 10% of the people. So who serves the other 90%? Well, that's what we're going to talk about. Uh, India. Probably 80% of doctors in India serve 20% of the people. Well, who serves the other 80%? That's what we're going to talk about. And so in missions, we need to de-emphasize the training of doctors. Now, that doesn't mean we have a family medicine residency in our hospital in Congo, and we're grateful for that, but we're training those doctors to be trainers of nurse practitioners as well as how to manage a uh, decentralized health care system. So it is what it looks like. Here are the communities, mostly poor people. Are we serving them? No. We're here. They have to come to us. And as I mentioned, most of them don't. The vast majority of them can't. Either they live too far away or they don't have the money or they don't understand what it's all about. But nurse practitioners will agree to live amongst them. They have come from that environment. They understand that environment vastly better than we do. And they live in the community. Now, keep in mind, I'm not talking about American nurse practitioners. I'm talking about Congolese nurse practitioners serving their community, Bangladeshi nurse practitioners serving their community. Our role, of course, from North America is to train the trainers of these people. Well, this is what our experience is. As I mentioned, we went to Congo in 61. And immediately I recognized that sitting in this little 100-bed bush hospital, with a quarter of a million people scattered in an area of maybe 3,000 square miles around us, that I was totally unable to have, take any responsibility for the health of the vast majority of those people by myself. We had two missionary nurses, including my wife, and maybe a half a dozen Congolese nurses. That was it. And so we immediately realized our first priority needs to be to start a training school. And we did that in 1962. Actually, we opened it. We began preparing for it a week after we arrived. It's a three-year, at that time it was mid-secondary school level, now it's post-secondary school. We trained and train young men as nurse practitioners. We train young women as nurses and as nurse midwives. Now, why the emphasis on men? This has nothing to do with gender. It's a sociological issue. You train a young woman as a family nurse practitioner, and you send her to a health center out in the bush. She may be happy to go there, but another young man from somewhere else is going to be happy that he got acquainted with her They're going to get married, and she will follow him to wherever he is. And so you've lost your nurse practitioner. You train a young man, and you send him out to the same place. He's going to look around for a young woman, and wherever he finds her and then marries her, she's going to come where he is, so he's going to stay. So it's a question of uh, much more permanent presence of these men in places where they are needed, Uh, and these, the women, as I say, we train to be nurses in hospitals or midwives in uh, more central maternities. Their training, and this was back in the early 60s, included everything. Nursing arts, uh, diagnostic skills. How to treat the common illnesses. And, of course, give nursing care, but actually prescribing medicines, doing minor surgery, that sort of thing. And then, of course, preventive services and health education. A comprehensive package of training. Now, a question that came up in the talk yesterday by John Sexton uh, on training mid-level Uh, personnel. Is this acceptable in the country? And that, of course, is an issue. Uh, In Congo, it was. Because the Belgian model, and this was the former Belgian Congo, was actually a good model. This was permissible. The British model, no, it's not permitted. The French model, no, it's not permitted officially. But one thing we have to realize as God's servants is that although we need to be very, very careful that we work closely with the government, we're still in the private sector. And being in the private sector, we have the opportunity to innovate, to look and see what needs to be done and figure out ways to do that, and then we should quietly talk to the government about what we're doing, why it's uh, being done, and would you please allow us to continue doing this to see if it's an effective way to meet needs that are not yet being met. And in most circumstances, that can work. This is the pyramid of health personnel that I feel is essential and it's essential here in this country. and as I say the. US is now moving much more in this direction and it's encouraging. Here are the here's the professional level, MDs and PhDs and and so forth and so on. Here's the diploma level. three to five people. Here, for everyone here, here's an auxiliary level, uh, LPN-type level it might be called. Here's the community. And lines of communication go both ways. And there's a much closer awareness of the professional level of what's going on here than there is in the more classical British-French-Portuguese model, which is this. Many on this level, equal numbers on these levels, and then a huge community down here that's hardly reached. And by the way, if you have questions, please lift your hands. A microphone is here and it will be brought to you, so you can interrupt me at any time, but I hope to finish quickly so you can ask questions. Community health workers are not the answer to the primary health care needs of people around the world. And we need to learn that. Uh, And in spite of failures all over the world since Alma-Ata, which is now 30 years, we're still talking about community health workers. They're not the answer because they're not adequately trained to diagnose and treat serious illnesses. Secondly, they're not full-time, and the World Health Organization proposed they be volunteers. Subsistence people cannot take time to volunteer for anything. They work hard seven days a week just to survive. How are they going to volunteer? Volunteerism is a phenomenon of our wealthy culture. We have the time. We have the resources to live on so that we can give our time as volunteers. But that's not true in Africa and in much of Latin America or Asia. And furthermore, these community health workers are not part of the health system, and they're not really reintegrated back into the communities from which they come. So what should exist on the community level? In Congo, we adopted this model way back in the beginning. In each village, there's a community development committee, not a health committee, a development committee. Because where does health leave off and nutrition begin or agriculture or any of these other necessary aspects of life? Uh, You can't separate them out, and the term health often means medical, so we call them the development committee a small group of men and women in each community chosen by them to coordinate activities related to sanitation and uh, better water sources and better management of the land and the forest and so forth and working with the health system when it comes to preschool clinics, prenatal clinics, vaccination programs and things of that sort. And by the way, all of this is discussed in this book we published 20 years ago, Let's Build Our Lives. And I think there's copies for sale of this down at the CMDA um, booth downstairs. So what does this mean for us? We need to learn how to train. Some of you who are involved in mission need to be training somebody. Some of you who are wanting to be involved in mission as a professional level health provider, as a nurse practitioner, mid-level therapist, whatever, get yourself trained to train, to teach, and particularly to understand and be able to use adult non-formal educational methods. Not to stand up and give lectures, but to work with people to help them learn, and particularly to help them learn practical skills. I had zero training in this, had to learn it as I went, but it works. Uh, We actually used to give a five-day workshop on how to train. And so I encourage you to think about that. And even those of you involved in short-term missions, you should not go on a short-term mission that does not have some kind of a training component in it so that you're leaving behind useful knowledge and skills in the community. Well, basically, I asked you at the beginning if you want to make the world a better place and I think you all responded that you did, it can't be done quickly. And frankly, and again, I I speak rather strongly, it can't be done with short-term mission trips. You can't do it in a year. You can get a good start in five years. But it requires a lifetime of investment, of incarnational ministry where you become one with the people, working with them, amongst them, alongside of them, and uh, one with them. And then you can bring about change. But what is desperately needed is schools to train these people. And I estimate we need a thousand or maybe 5,000 schools to train mid-level professionals in Africa, Latin America, still in many parts of Asia. Interestingly enough, it's beginning to happen in India. Dr. Vinod Shah is here, and he's uh, involved in the CMC Velour, and they're starting along this route, which is very uh, encouraging. Because these are the people then who make possible decentralization. So that's the second point. How do we decentralize? What does it mean? We still need hospitals. Hospitals are needed for several reasons. Secondary level care. But also as the nodum or the base for a network of health centers scattered throughout the surrounding area, where primary health care services are available to people all over that area, be it urban or be it rural. And this is what it could look like. And this is a rough diagram of what developed in the Congo during our years there. Here was our hospital at Vanga. That's a big river. And about, whoops, that should be 3,000 square miles and a quarter of a million people. Here was our school. We started it in 1962. And then with graduates from that school, gradually centers were able to be established. The red ones were centers on our church centers. These were non-functioning government dispensaries that eventually became a part of our system. So in actual reality, we accomplished Health for All by the year 1985. It can be done with this kind of approach. Well, what is the hospital for? Obviously for referral and surgery and uh, complicated obstetrics and things of that nature. But it's the training base so that the people needed out here are trained here in conditions that resemble what happens out here and by people who know what happens out there. And then, of course, it's the supply center, the center for supervision, and we had teams of supervisors going out on a monthly basis to all of these different places, not only to supervise, but to evaluate what was going on. Now, what happens in the health center? First of all, the people built these health centers. We didn't build them. And don't go building buildings. And don't go get a short-term mission trip from of people from Denver, Colorado, to come out and build you a health center. Because then it's a Denver, Colorado health center. It's not of the people. People can build it. Many of ours were built out of mud with grass roofs. Quite a number were built out of burnt bricks and uh, with tin roofs, but it's their center. They have ownership over it. And then when things were ready, we would staff it with one or two graduates of our schools. We struggled with how do we get a midwife out to these places, Because as I mentioned, we train girls as midwives, post them out yonder, they get married and off they go. Finally, through our thick brain, the reality dawned on us. These men, nurse practitioners, were all married. And the wives of many of them had been to school. Some of them had even been to secondary school. So we just brought their wives into the hospital for a six-month auxiliary nurse midwife course. And now we have maternities in probably a third of those health centers, a team. Uh, The husband being the nurse practitioner, the wife being the midwife. And maternal mortality, infant mortality rates have plummeted because of this. And so... They also provide your primary level curative care, malaria, meningitis, uh, uh, acute respiratory, GI tract problems, and so forth and so on. They can take care of adequately. Preventive services, preschool clinics, prenatal clinics, vaccination programs, all done out there on a regular basis. And through the years then, and I think still now, Over 90% of all of the under five children come regularly on a monthly basis to a preschool clinic throughout this whole area because they happen out here. The preschool clinics actually happen each month in the village. The staff from here goes to each village uh, once a month to do the preschool clinics. The prenatal clinics once a month are here. The vaccination program once a month in the health center health education, and so on. Our goal was to have one health center for every 5,000 people. Now, that varied a bit, but much beyond that, it's too much, then you need to have a second one. And no community should be more than an hour away from a functioning health center where acute care is available. Now, here's the difficult question. Here is this model. Most mission hospitals aren't doing it, even today, and I don't know why. So I'm happy to be here to talk to you. You guys got to think about this. And, of course, it needs to be done in Los Angeles and Chicago and many parts of this country, getting health care to where people are, But I don't want to name names because that wouldn't quite be fair. But you think about the mission hospitals that you know. And are they doing this or are they still just big mission hospitals? Because the mission hospital as a centralized institution with health care confined to it, that's the old paradigm. This is the new paradigm. And it's the paradigm we need to be focusing on. Now, what did Jesus do? Well, everything I've been explaining to you, Jesus modeled and he taught us. And we need to be doing it. Uh, And what really deeply disturbs my soul is this 4 billion people today who have no adequate health care? And yet, 2,000 years ago, Jesus told us, his followers, to heal the sick. And so, why this? The early church did heal the sick and you read the history of the first 3 centuries of the christian era and it's remarkable they didn't have medical care of course but they took care of the sick everywhere and that compassionate care of sick people transformed the western world and it was one of the major reasons why the whole roman greek pantheons, the gods and goddesses of the Roman and Greek, world, disappeared. Because the world saw that Jesus makes a difference, a practical difference. And the world needs to see that today. Uh, Okay. So, getting back to health for all. There is a strong movement now in the World Health Organization and in certain Christian health circles to revive the Alma-Ata goal of health for all. Well, this is what it's going to require. Our current paradigms have to change. And it can happen if massive numbers of young people From the United States, from South Korea, from India, from Europe, wherever, go and stay. And go as trainers. Don't go out as a nurse to do nursing. Don't go out as a doctor to do doctoring. As a nurse, go out to train nurses. As a doctor go out to train nurse practitioners and doctors also if that opportunity is there. Uh, I mentioned we need at least a 1,000 schools and we need to be training tutors to replace us. So if you go out as a trainer of nurses, you need to be also a trainer of trainers of nurses. If you go to Nigeria and train Nigerian nurse practitioners, fine. Then train Nigerians as trainers of nurse practitioners. Or to Bangladesh, the same thing. Or Indonesia or wherever God may be leading you. And so that's the bottom line. Are we equal to this task? Okay, we've got Almost 20 minutes for questions or rebuttals or wherever. Thank you. And speak into the micro that will be recorded. I was curious, you said that the Chinese model worked as a centralized model, but yet we're decentralizing what we do? Uh, did, did the Chinese decentralize in the world? Well, back during the old system, these village barefoot doctors were, you know, there was some coordination between the local medical facilities and them. Uh, I'm not very knowledgeable of what happened then. I do know what happened in Cuba and North Korea and to some extent Russia through the Felcher system. Uh, but the issue is this and take this back to your churches, take it back to your missions. The false assumption developed in the 1950s in mission circles that the era of medical missionaries now could be phased out because government health services were developing. And now there's a plethora of medical schools in India and China and Indonesia and Latin America and so forth, and even to some extent in Africa. So there are large numbers of national health facilities and doctors. But, dear friends, they don't work. And the reason is very simple. Uh, They don't know about Jesus. Compassionate health care began in Capernaum on a Saturday evening in 30 A.D. And our whole health care system in the Western world came out of that model. Well, government health services, including now in this country, are staffed by people who are getting a salary and who have a job and who do their job because that's what they're trained to do and their goal is to complete their job. We who are followers of Jesus, we care for sick people because they're sick and because the Lord wants them to get well. And there's a difference. If you get a chance, talk to Vinod Shah, who is here from India. He has a marvelous talk comparing government health services, private health services, university health services, and Christian health services. And the differences are enormous. Get last in the exhibition Hall, do you have any tips on mission agencies that specifically recall this sort of thing, or what sort of connection should I be making at this point? Um, you say you're a, a nursing student. Yeah. And what is your real question? Say it again. There's a great plan that you present, but as a student who, the, what what resources, what resources, question, but I get a lot of answers that don't necessarily yeah. say oh, you will be able to train with us as opposed to just working yeah. with us. That's a very difficult question to answer. Because again, like I say, missions, the vast majority of North American missions are still in this mode that the only reason for missions is to get people to heaven. And that Medical missions, agricultural missions, and so forth are secondary. And we really don't have the money to do them all. So you do need to look around. And this conference is a very good place. Go talk. Ask pointed questions. Go to SIM, AIM. Uh, uh, there aren't many missions. As missions, we have booths here, but there are a few. Ask them pointed questions. Uh I just came from a two-hour lunch meeting with about 20 of us talking about how can we bring about the change in paradigms as to what needs to be done in terms of health ministries, global health ministries, and getting the American church to understand that, and getting American missions to understand that. Uh, we could certainly use you in the Congo. That wouldn't be a problem. I spent two weeks, just two weeks ago, in Hawaii with YWAM at the University of the Nations, and we spent hours talking about this. And You could talk to YWAM leaders what would be the possibilities. And by the way, the founder and director of YWAM, Nora, Lauren Cunningham, had just come back from Nigeria. And Nigeria is... In a bad situation, the Taliban is creating increasing havoc throughout the country. It's becoming uh, much more difficult to be a Christian there. And the president of Nigeria called Lauren Cunningham in and said, Sir, please establish a YWAM base in every one of our 36 states in Nigeria. You're the only answer to our problem. Now, it would be hard to think of a better opportunity for a mission than something like that. Now, can YWAM respond to that challenge? I don't know. They're probably better equipped to do it than most any other mission. And I was talking with them and saying, think very carefully about establishing in at least some of those bases a school for training Nigerian nurses. So uh, look around, and as I say, ask questions, talk to church leaders, and somehow we Christian health people, and I assume many of you are health people, and I'm quite certain you're all Christian, we have got to restore wholeness to medicine. Why is Washington in such a dilemma about our health care? Because the compassion is gone. Altruism died in medicine 50 years ago. And I was in medical school and saw it happen. And in large part, it's our fault. We have got to restore wholeness to medicine. Uh, But anyway... uh, Project MedSend, by the way, I, you may have heard about, and most of you have, in your training, contact Project Med- Medsen about the issue of borrowing money, debts, and so on, how to avoid overborrowing and getting into uh, too much debt. But education-related debts are no longer a major obstacle for those of you who want to serve because that's why MedSend exists. And MedCent is very much involved in this question of how can we change paradigms in missions and in churches and amongst us all. Okay, question back there. Um, your people who were nurse practitioners in the Congo, uh, how were they supported? Church, government, uh, local funds? Okay, the nurse practitioners who we have trained, who other Protestant missions have trained, are all supported by the local budget. Now, <clears throat> I could tell you some long stories of the economic gymnastics we had to go through in a country whose currency was worthless, and how do you import medicines, because they had to be imported, how do you pay salaries, and so forth and so on. But God has, has enabled us None of our local budgets get outside subsidies, and the people do pay. And throughout the Congo, the Protestant medical services, health services, are a fee-for-service base. Have a fee-for-service base, and people do pay. Even the very poor people pay. Sometimes they pay in peanuts or cassava or or corn, but uh, it's all locally supported. Just mentioned about bringing in the medicines. The medicines were supplied to them? We ordered medicines from the International Dispensary Association in Amsterdam, generic medicines, and IDA was a lifesaver. We ordered through a central agency in Kinshasa that happened to be managed by a Jesuit priest from Belgium, and it was a marvelous service. The problem we had was we, of course, had to pay dollars. And we had to pay for every order a year before we got the medicine because that's how long it took us to get it. Uh, And yet God enabled us. Where did we get the dollars from? Well, our own salaries from the U.S. were paid in dollars. We needed local currency. We went to our hospital pharmacy and bought local currency with our dollars. We had certain construction projects with money coming in from Europe. Well, they had to have local currency to buy cement and building supplies and pay staff and so forth. So these construction projects bought local currency from our pharmacy. And so uh, we... By using the common sense and biblical principles that we're gifted with, uh, we've been able to do that. Health programs around the world need to be locally based. And those of you who work in free clinics here in the U.S. for poor people, rethink what you're doing. Free clinics here are not sustainable nor do they um, stimulate ownership on the part of people who come for free care. Uh, And I would encourage you to rethink that, because as people pay something, even though it's far less than the real cost, now they're participating. And they're far more apt to follow the instructions that you give to take the initiatives they need to take for their own health care if they're paying something for it and that of course we have seen in Congo but you were subsidizing it then in part sorry you were subsidizing it then in part we were subsidizing number 1 in my presence i was there paid as an american missionary now i'm no longer there it's congolese doctors who replaced me So that subsidy is gone. So in terms of missionary personnel where they exist, that is a subsidy. We did receive fairly large quantities of hospital supplies from women in churches throughout the U.S., what we called White Cross supplies. That was a subsidy. So there are certain subsidies but those subsidies did not go into the paying of salaries or to the purchasing of medicines or the fuel or other basic uh, materials that we needed. That we had to cover those costs with local income. Now, one deep concern we had, and we've been talking about it a great deal here, that noon meeting and last night with others, is getting adequate training for you young people before you go out in a lot of these difficult issues. There will be a working group on community health the next hour, down in AT106, I think. And tomorrow morning I'm going to be talking about um, the cross-cultural Transmission of ideas about health. You need training in that. You, and this is one reason for a very high missionary mortality. Not missionaries dying, but missionaries giving up and coming home, especially in the health sector. And many doctors and nurses go out and get very discouraged and quickly come home. And the basic reason is because they haven't had adequate training in these kind of issues that, of course, you'll never hear about in your schools of nursing or medicine here in the U.S. So that's another uh, large piece that we're trying to get together. Adequate training for you who are going out to serve. Okay, we got time maybe for one more question. Or for a long closing prayer. <laughs> Any other Father, we have tried to see the world. As you see the world, you see those four billion people, Lord. You are concerned for them. But we read our Bible, and it's very clear from this book that you have written that you don't work on your own. You work through us. And that the vast needs of the world that you want to meet, you're looking for faithful followers who will follow you to do the work that needs to be done. Jesus, you commissioned us to go to the end of the world, to take good news of health, of life, of eternity, to the peoples of the world. And you're still waiting because, Lord, the harvest fields are bigger today than they've ever been before. And they're getting more and more difficult. And you're waiting for more and more disciples. And so, Lord, I just pray as we close here that your spirit will be speaking in the hearts and minds of many, especially young people, to challenge them with these needs And to help them to hear your call to them. Thank you for this time together. And just take these ideas that we've been sharing, Lord, and you run with them in our midst. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.